You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Exodus. Deliverance. A way out. When the Israelites were captive to a bondage forged by human hands, God delivers. When the idolatry of their human hearts was louder than the hunger after their God, God is faithful. When God's people forfeited the blessings of his divine presence, God restores relationship. At the moment, God meets with Moses on the mountaintop. He has already saved them. God redeems and brings his people into freedom and then provides instruction on how to live. Be holy for I am holy, for you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Be holy and show the nations who I am. Moses, an instrument of God's rescuing, leads the Israelites out of physical bondage in Egypt. Yet he is a mere shadow, a pale precursor to the one who leads God's people out of eternal spiritual bondage and sin, Jesus Christ, the one who came to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and to set the oppressed free. This is a story of rescue and freedom a story of God's desire to dwell with his people, a story of grace upon grace. Good morning. If you guys would, go ahead and open your Bible to the book of Exodus. We're going to continue our series titled Grace Upon Grace, as we just saw in the video. We're continuing our series this morning, picking up on the covenant ceremony with where Pastor Brad left off last week. And it's called the covenant ceremony because... We have, God, we have God's covenant people, the Israelites, and we have God setting them apart. He's made them holy. He has called them. He has saved them. He has made them his people, and now he's telling them how to live, and so he's given them instruction. So God's people are set apart to live and worship God according to the way that God lays out for us in his word. I'm going to say this up front. I think this sermon this morning and what we're covering will likely offend some people, but here's the truth. The gospel offends people because at the center of the gospel is not humans, you and me. At the center of the gospel is one human named Jesus Christ. And so what we bring to the table is our sinful nature. What Christ brought to the table was his sinless nature, and he makes an exchange with us. And so the gospel doesn't allow for humans to get glory, to be the hero of the story. It doesn't allow for it. The gospel only allows for one person to get all the credit and all the glory, and that's Jesus Christ. We don't like that because we like to be the heroes. So our mission statement says, make Jesus the hero. So just to tell you guys, we're going to be talking about all sorts of stuff this morning as we work through this. We're covering a lot of ground in just a couple of chapters. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for everyone that is here right now. Father, we recognize that people walk in on a Sunday morning with an array of emotions. Some feel guilt over their weeks. Some feel shame over their lives. Some feel fear and anxiety over being in social settings like this. Father, we recognize that there's people in this room that are hurting and grieving, going through difficult situations and circumstances in their life. What we recognize is this, that Jesus 
Pain and suffering is not something you are disconnected or removed from, that we serve a God who walked this earth. We serve a God that is well acquainted with grief, with pain, and with suffering. But we serve a God who sent his son to come in and remove our guilt, remove our shame, and remove our fear, give us an identity secured in Christ to come in and worship, to hear from you, to hear from your word, to be exhorted, to be challenged, and to be reminded of who you are and who we are in Christ. Father, let your word challenge us. Let your word convict us and let your word humble us. Let us receive this morning what you have for us. Let us not receive what you have for us to be listening for the person next to us or other people in the room. Let us first receive what you want to communicate to us and then let us take the gospel. Let us take the good news that's been conveyed through your word and share that to a world that is lost, through a world that is hurting, and through a world that is hopeless. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our main point this morning is going to be God's law shows us the way. God's law shows us the way. That's what we're going to be looking at. Let me start off with this. See, God's law is good, and it's good to have laws. In fact, I was at a park yesterday with my three kiddos, and what I've realized is that I don't like parks. And the reason why is it's quite simple. It's just a concentrated group of sinners all crammed together in a small space. All kids without any sort of rules or laws governing them. And then I noticed, and yes, I am judging right now, I've noticed it's with a lot of parents that are playing on their phones. So it bothers me what takes place at a park. And so I get on edge whenever I'm at a park. I'm unenjoyable to be there because I'm watching everything. In fact, yesterday, one little girl kicked my son's box. And I was like, please don't do that to which she just stared at me for a second and then stopped. One time I was at a park and a boy did something mean to my daughter and, and I said the same thing without please. It's a little different when I'm talking to a young man. I'm like, don't do that. To which he challenged me in a stare down for about 10 seconds and I wasn't gonna back down from it. So we were just eye to eye until he moved away and my wife is like, what are you doing? <laughs> so I think we should have some rules at parks. Maybe parents, put your phone away, watch what your kids are doing. Maybe if you're over 13, don't go to the park too. It's like the slum boys are running up the slide and my kids are, I, some of you get it and it bothers you too. It's like the slide, gravity moves this way, quit doing this. It really bothers me. And, I, and I'm by the slide, like I'm a lifeguard of the slide. I'm like, nope, nope, it's not how it works. It's not how it works. And then I find myself, I'm like, when someone kicked my daughter's box, I'm like, I'm not gonna take it on you. Where are your parents at? Leg for leg. You kick my daughter, I kick your dad. This is how this is going down. And so I'm angry at a park, but I'm like, there's no rules. And I think there should be some rules. Another setting where there is rules, but then the rules are violated is my daughter plays basketball. I'm not gonna name the organization because that would be tactful, but they did write a song about it in the 70s. And you can steal a ball in basketball. That's part of the game, that, that's part of the way that the game is played. But now in this organization, ha halfway to the season, they said no more steals because it was hurting kids' feelings. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yesterday there was a kid that game, I honestly felt so bad for him. But like he stole the ball in the air and then he like looked at his parents and the crowd was tense and he was like dribbling. He's like, it's not cheating. So I'm like, I support you, dude. I literally screamed that. I don't know who he was. But they literally made it to where the rules of the game are meant to be played a specific way and honored. And then they change that and it bothers me because I'm like, these are in place for a reason and, and they're good. Like we have certain laws in our land that are good laws. Don't drink and drive. Let's keep that law. That's a good law. What we have to see as we look at God's law this morning is it sits inside of a certain context for Jewish people, certain time, certain place, certain people, but it comes from a good God. 
and it's really good. And we should look at it, we should read it, and we should see it that way. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, is God's law is good, but God's law shows us the way. But before we dive into Exodus 21, where we're going to be at this morning, let me just explain something, because this is going to be helpful. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while, maybe not, but this is just going to help you understand God's law. John Calvin, Protestant reformer, gave three uses of the law. These were the uses that he established for God's law. He said the first one is it's, it's intended to be a mirror, okay? R.C. Sproul says that by studying or meditating on God's law, we attend the school of righteousness. So when we look at God's law, we should look at it and go, whoa, it's holy, it's good, it's righteous, because it came from the, the, the source of goodness and righteousness from God. So, but it's meant to be a mirror because as we look at it, we go, no one lives to that standard. The second is that it's a restraint for evil. It cannot change the heart, but it can protect the righteous and uphold justice in our society, which is why Paul says in Romans 13, to obey the laws of the land, because the laws of the land are meant to uphold justice. And then the third one is that it reveals what pleases God. We are not justified. Let me say it again. We are not justified because of our obedience to the law, but we are saved and empowered by the Spirit to now walk in obedience to God's law. But which part of the law? As Brad left off last week, I'm going to pick up today, that there's also three categories for God's law. There's the moral law we can look at. To covet your neighbor's wife, like he said, that's good. Like everyone would agree, it's good not to covet your neighbor's wife. It's good not to steal. It's good, it's, it's good not to murder. These things are good. But then we have what's called the civil law. And we're going to be looking at a lot of that today. It's laws about restitution, laws about justice, laws about slavery. And all of this is what we're going to be actually diving into today. And then we have the ceremonial law. All of these laws, the civil laws and the ceremonial laws, are sequential to the moral law, meaning they follow in order. The moral law teaches how to shape the civil law, but then also the ceremonial law, because it's all connected back to the Ten Commandments of how we worship God and worship God alone. So that's what we're going to look at today. What is the relevance to us? Is that we can understand that Christ said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it is the ceremonial law, which created categories for people that were clean and unclean. That's been set aside because Christ fulfilled it. We can eat bacon and we can enjoy bacon. It's, it's food that we can enjoy. We can even look at the civil law and say those principles still exist today. In fact, as we look at ox, maybe we don't have oxen, but we can have dogs. We once had to put our dog down. His name was Jocko. Uh, because our vet told us that he essentially had a screw loose and that he had to document that. And that if our dog then turned on someone else and attacked someone else and they called him up, he would have to honestly tell them that our dog did that, then we would be liable for a lawsuit. Those principles are still rooted from God's civil law that we see and that we're going to look at today in the Old Testament. And so I believe the civil law and I believe the ceremonial law were for a certain people, the Israelites, in a certain time, in a certain place but we still have those principles with us today. And I believe that God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, is still binding to us. It's just not the way in which we come into a right standing with God. It never will be. And so therefore, it eliminates pride because no one gets to say, well, I've upheld these ones, and, 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 well, uh, and you haven't upheld these, and I've done these better, and I've done these better. Because in Christianity, there are two categories. That's it. They're, uh, oppressed and oppressor, which we're going to see today, those are ideological categories that are breathed in to God's word from a worldview. Christianity has two categories, sinner and sinless, meaning that we all are sinners who have violated and sinned against God's law. We are all in need of grace. And the only way, the way that we're going to get there is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
which is why Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In fact, the main point of today, God's law shows us the way. Christianity in the first century was referred to as the way. Acts 9, 2 shows us this. <clears throat> and it says, and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, capital W, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So they, they were being referred to, Christians were, as the way, because it says this, I am the way. We also see in Matthew 7, 13, it says this, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, but the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Why? Because it's hard to not want to place ourselves at the center of the story and be the hero. So we're going to see that God's law shows us the way. What God's law is going to show us is that we have it and we can't. We didn't do it. Christ did it. He's the only way for us to come in right standing with God. And because after we place our faith in him, he gives us his spirit, we're empowered to live a life in obedience to God. 20, uh, chapter 21, God's law shows us the way. We're going to look at slavery right here, 21, 1 through 11. Now, these are the rules that shall be set before you. Pause. You're like, we're not going to get very far this morning. The Israelites have been delivered by God's grace. We're saying this week after week. God did not say, here's my laws, here's my rules, obey them, and then I'll consider delivering you. God said, I've saved you by my grace. I brought you out of captivity. I brought you out of oppression. And I brought you safely on eagle's wings in to my protection. Now, now, here is how you live. You live this way not to get saved, to get God's love, to get God's approval. You live this way because you have it. But also recognize this. Imagine you have several million people out in the wilderness. The only law that they've understood is they were oppressed for 400 years by Egyptians. They don't know how they should be governed. They don't know how to interact. They don't know civil laws. They don't know these things. So God is stepping in saying, let me show you how to live. Let me break these things down for you because this is going to be good. This is going to, this is going to help relationally. If the summation of the law is love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbors yourself, these rules are intended to do just that. That's why they're laid out for us. That's why God is laying them out for the Israelites. Verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he should go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Verse 7, when a man sells his daughter a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment or money. It's very important for us this morning to understand this. When we, when we read the word slavery, and when we see that word here, to not read it anachronistically. And what I mean by that, that's, a, that's your $3 word this morning. 
Acronisms or anachronistic readings is a hermeneutic lens in which we read. And what we do is we take 19th century slavery, which was oppressive, evil, and awful. And every person should praise God for the emancipation of proclamation that took place in January 1st of 1863. But what we tend to do is we tend to, to, to read that form of slavery specific to African Americans and read it into the text. That's an anachronistic reading. Uh, reading. We're taking something now and reading it back into it. We have to read it from this setting. Even in the Roman Empire in the first century, 10 to 20% of the Roman Empire existed within slavery. So out of 20 million people, that's anywhere from 5 to 10 million people. In this setting, a better phrase, a better term would be indentured servant. Because you have to see, this is not racially driven. This is Hebrews with other Hebrews. This is Israelites with other Israelites. And so what is happening here is that people would get themselves into debt and in a position that they couldn't pay for. And what they would do is they would hire themselves out to someone else and say, I will work off my debt to you. But what we can see here from this text is there was timelines and constraints with it. It could only happen for six years. And on the seventh year, they were to go free. And not only free, this is what's amazing. If you, if you look at the Emancipation of Proclamation and black people were set free, they weren't set free with anything. So in some ways, they were in just a real mess because they had nothing. But we can see the way that our God has governed it, even in this, servanthood is way different. Look at Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 15 with me. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall set him, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of the threshing floor, out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. It's different. Six years, not racially driven, and when you were liberated, when you were set free from your service, you were also blessed by the person who was a master over you. So already it looks drastically different. Also, there was no involuntary slavery or abuse. Look here with me. If you look a little bit further down at verse 16, it says this, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So it's not involuntary. You also can't sell them and exploit them to other nations, but also you can't beat them. You can't hurt them. Look down at 26. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. In other words, do not mistreat them. Do not physically abuse them. So we have no signs that this was involuntary. We have, uh, we have clear evidence that they were not to be abused. But what we see, and I think it's unique here, we start off with slavery. Because the Israelites would understand this, and they also understood what it was to be slaves underneath an oppressive dictator like Pharaoh. And now they were being instructed, this is how you are to treat one another in this. The way God governs, the way God's leave looks, looks drastically different from the nation that they just came out of. And so God is laying out rules, in fact, to protect people that were indentured servants. What's beautiful is this. In verse 6, let's read it again. It also wasn't intended to divide families. Let me say that. African-American slavery was intended to divide families. And it did do that oftentimes. This is if 
a wife came in with you, a wife left with you. But also, if you were serving on your sixth year and then you got married, she couldn't go with you, but there were stipulations on what you could do. Why? Because she was also an indentured servant, had to work for her other five years now, whatever time remains, but you could wait for her. You could go get another job. There's things you could do. So it wasn't intended to break up the family, but figure out how to keep the family dynamics together. But let's read verse six again. If he doesn't want to go free because he wants to work for his master, then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be a slave forever. Interesting. He can decide that he wants to be a slave to this master forever. What's interesting is the reversal of this. Let's look at Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child? This is, this is God speaking, speaking to his children. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God is speaking to Israel. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. You see, it was common, as one theologian said, it was very common that a master would mark out his slave with some sort of earring, with something that symbolized this is the slave to the master. There's a sense of ownership. But never, ever, ever do we see the master engraving himself on behalf of the slave. You have to see this. Can, can, can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the sum of her own. Even, even these may forget. You can look at a mom and go, wow, what, what unconditional love she has for her baby. And God says, even these may forget, but, but not me. In fact, here's how you can know that I will never forget you. Normally, a slave will put some sort of mark on himself or on herself, but instead I'm going to put a mark on me. Tim Keller, pastor, theologian, says this, that the word that we have for engraved here is not a pretty tattoo it's a chisel, chiseling out something in someone's palms. What we have is Christ essentially telling us here into the future, the way that you can know that I will never forget you is that I'm going to have my palms engraved. And so the master will come as a servant, not to serve, but to be served. And I am going to have spikes driven through my hands. In fact, the resurrected Christ appeared to Thomas, and Thomas is like, unless I see him, unless I see the scars, I won't believe. And he says, here's the scars. The resurrected body of Christ walks around today with scars in his hands because those scars say, I'm marked. The way that you can trust that my faithfulness and commitment to you will never move is not a mark you take, but the marks that I took on the cross. I bear those and wear those for eternity. I have a constant reminder in the palm of my hands that you are mine and you are safe. We see this made clear in Philippians 2, 5, and 11. It's a reversal. It's a reversal of Exodus put forth in Christ. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's a reversal. The master, the king himself, the law provider became the law abider so that we could become family insiders. 
Jesus is the one who gave the law. He's the one who abided and followed the law. And then he's the one that provides the way and the only way for us to come and be insiders in the family of God. He's marked. So we remain on the inside. Let's keep reading. God's law shows us the way. Verses 22 through 25 says this. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fine, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The lex talionis is what it's called, the law of retribution. What we have here is, is something beautiful. What we have in verses 22 through 25 is showing, and all of this is what, it, what is being shown, is that God values the human life. And human life from God's perspective doesn't start on the other side of a three to six inch vaginal canal, but starts inside the womb. God values the life of a womb so much that the same charge that is to happen to the person for harming the woman, the same charge, life for life, if the baby comes out wounded, if the baby comes out dead, then it's life for life. There are many verses that people can try to go to and show, but some of the clearest evidence that we have that God values the life of a womb, values the life in the womb and deems it a human is right here in front of us. This is what's to happen. If two men are in a squabble, they get in a little fight, something happens, it's accidental, and they hit a woman, this is what's intended. If they hit a woman in such a way that they kill the baby and the baby comes out dead, then it's life for a life is what God says, which means this, regardless of the nonsense that our culture tells us, the life inside of a womb is a human life and aborting a child is murder according to God's word. Strong language, I know, but it's strong language because our culture has constantly told us something else. It's your right, it's your choice, you can do what you want. But the truth is, from God's perspective, and we should adopt the same, that baby inside the womb is a human and should be honored and treated as such. In fact, oftentimes, women that fight for women's rights wouldn't even be able to fight for those rights. Logically, if abortion had taken place on them, their existence is, is, is proof that they have logical minds to rationalize with and put a fight forward because someone didn't end their life. A lot of the terminology shows that we don't even like the language. We call it fetus, which, which actually means infant. We call it termination, which is killing. So we've tried to soften language to make it more palatable for us, which is really sad because according to God, a human, and it's a life, it's a human. And what all the law is showing us is that human life to God is valuable, so valuable. In fact, how we treat other humans matters. One of the constant arguments that we hear, what about rape? or incest, which if you look at the statistics, it's very low. But even in that case, let me say this. As a husband of a wife who I adore, as a dad of two little girls, the father of a son, one thing I'm constantly teaching my son when he's ready to lash out on my daughters, I say, son, I say, and I was never taught this. I say, what do men, how do men treat women? And he knows his response. We love them, we honor them, and we protect them. When someone brings the case of rape up, that would infuriate me as a dad if something like that happened to my daughters. And my heart grieves for any woman who that has happened for. What I would say is this, is rape is a picture of a stronger person violating the will of a weaker person. In abortion, we have 
a stronger person violating and going against the will of a weaker person. I don't believe that we should punish the sins of a father by punishing the child. What I believe is that we should punish the father who violated a woman, but never the child, which is hard, which means there's other options. We could look at adoption. We could look at various things like that. Hang in there with me, ladies. Hang in there with me, men. But there's other options that we could look at. But killing is not one of them, not according to God's law. And let me also say this. If, if this is rattling some of you guys, come talk to me afterwards. I, I'm willing to be challenged. I'm willing to engage. I'm willing to talk through this. I will say this. Scripture is going to be my authority. So if you're going to engage me on the grounds of feelings, we won't have much of a debate because I can't go my feelings against your feelings. But we can debate theologically on the grounds of God's word. I hope to be patient in that. I hope to be graceful in that. But let, lastly, let me say this. As a man who has very dear, dear, dear women in my life who have had multiple abortions, in no way do I want to bring condemnation, guilt, or shame upon any woman in this room or any woman that's listening that has made that decision in the past. In fact, that decision is a finite sin, and God provides through the blood of his son infinite redemption. That means that there is no sin that humans commit outside of flat-out rejecting Christ that the blood of Christ is not sufficient to cover. That means there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. There is no more shame. There is no more guilt. There is no lack of forgiveness. There's an ability in Christ to recognize this. He's paid it all. My debt he's paid. The blood he spilled is infinite. And it has infinite worth and infinite cost that covers all of your finite sins. And what's declared over your life is righteous, beauty, innocence, purity, and holiness in Christ. That's what the gospel brings. In fact, I love what Isaiah says. And this is about the new covenant. As it's being foretold, it says this, Isaiah 54, 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. The same word a shame that's used right here is used back in the garden. It says that the man and woman were naked and unashamed. And what Christ does is he brings in and he takes on the shame and the guilt of all the condemnation of all the sin, and he brings it upon himself, becoming a curse, taking it all, and then offering the fullness of his righteousness, forgiveness, and grace. Amen? Let's keep cruising. Let's look at restitution starting in 33. I'm not going to read all of this because I'm looking at my time made a commitment to our staff this week on my time frame I was going to keep because keep, there's a lot here. So I'm going to say that just for you guys, you can mark this out. 33 through 22.15 is looking at restitution. Restitution. And what we see here is this, is that an eye for an eye is not intended to be, and it was never intended to be, an actual eye for an eye. But it's actually a logical ordering of if someone commits a crime Let's look at the crime and assess the crime and then give a punishment that is consistent with it. There's weird laws in the U.S. I'm going to read through some of them. Really weird laws. Like, if you kill someone's sheep, then you can murder them or kill them. I'm like, that's not a consistent eye for an eye. That's not, that's not what the Bible had in mind. In fact, in Nevada, that if you killed a man's dog, you could hang that man. And up until like recently, they're like, oh, we didn't even know the state law was here. And so they had to go back and change it. So there's really weird laws like that. God's law is trying to be consistent. What, actually, what it's actually trying to do and what, what it is doing is it's bringing relationship and unity. Why? Because nowadays, if you wrong someone, they might write you a fine. And then if you don't pay the fine, then you get sent to jail. And then someone else who you wrong is actually paying for your time in jail and your meals, which is a really broken system. But then 
you don't have to see them. In restitution, in the way that God's law works out, is you actually had to go and work for the person. You had to see the eye that, that you caused to be gouged out, and then you had to work off. So if this person could only do half their labor now, then you had to step in and help with the other half the labor. If they, if they can only do this much, then you had to jump in and help. In fact, we see these laws still exist. There was a recent lawsuit uh, from the University of Oregon against the prior former football coach, million dollars, suing a football coach for injuries that he sustained for $100 million. So we see the principles here. What he was saying is that my career was disrupted in such a way to where I can't perform this way anymore. And so you're going to have to pay for my family. You're going to have to pay for my job. You're going to have to pay for things, these types of things. And so we see that here is that the restitution even piece that we see in our society sometimes comes from even right here. It's, it's a good thing. Zacchaeus is actually one who goes, hey, I see all the wrong that I've done through my greed, so I want to pay it back. It's impacting his behavior. And so we can see that is actually a really good thing because we have a broken system put together by broken men with really weird and broken laws. I'm not going to read through all these, but if you don't believe these are real, look them up. Here's some laws that exist. Lighten the mood again, okay? In Alabama, bear wrestling matches are prohibited. In Alaska, it's illegal to whisper in someone's ear while they are moose hunting. And kangaroos are not allowed in a barber shop in any time. In Arizona, hunting camels is prohibited. In Arkansas, alligators may not be kept in bathtubs. And it is, uh, Arkansas must be pronounced Arkansas. And they get offended if you say Arkansas or Arkansas and add an S to it, which I'm like, why don't you guys just phonetically change it up a little bit and we could help everyone here. We'll keep going. These are laws created by men. In Illinois, it is against the law to use a slingshot unless you are a law enforcement officer, which would be incredible <laughs> to see. In Kentucky, is it, it is illegal in Kentucky to marry the same man more than three times. I'm like, come on, the third time's a charm. In Maine, it's unlawful to, tack, <laughs> to tickle a woman. <laughs> in Maine, it is unlawful to tickle a woman's chin with a feather duster in Portland. Just rolling out all four play options. In Massachusetts, no gorilla is allowed in the backseat of your car. It doesn't say anything about the front seat, just not the backseat. In Nevada, it's against the law to pawn your dentures. In Myrtle Creek, Oregon, an hour and a half south, one may not box with a kangaroo. In Utah, the husband is responsible for every criminal act committed by his wife while she's in his presence. The women are like, yeah, cool. <clears throat> in Washington, you may not ride on an ugly horse. Guys, I'm not kidding, and I could keep going. All this to say, what we are starting to see is like, there's some laws that were written by men addressing, so at some point in some time, Someone was driving around with a gorilla in their back seat. At some point, someone had a kangaroo in a barbershop, and at some point, someone was boxing with a kangaroo. And so they had to implement laws to address things. When we go back and look at what's happening in 21 through 23, God is contextually giving laws that speak to certain things that people go through and that certain customs were doing. It says, do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. Why would God's law need to say that? Apparently, that was a part of a ritual and custom back then. So there's a very practical side of God's law. We can see the broken side of men implementing weird, crazy laws. But what we can see in this text is that God's law shows us the way, the way life is actually intended to be lived to where we can love him and love our neighbor. What we also see is this. Look at chapter 22, verse 16. Let me read some laws about justice. 
I have no problem with the term social justice if what's intended by that is justice that's according to God's word and God's law. In fact, Aquinas, Augustine, Martin Luther King Jr. would all adhere to that. Verse 16, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. God's law is talking about sexual responsibility, premarital sex, talking about that you can't live in such a way and it goes unchecked, which we see nowadays by so many people and so many men go in and get their fill and then they're out. And if some of the language is like hard for us to understand, like, hey, why is there a price tag on women? Just please understand this. I have so much more in my notes about this that, that we can talk through, but just because something that we deem as weird in our American culture and it's not normal, just know this, there's a lot of stuff that happens in different places around the world that's much different than us. And we shouldn't just look at it and go, boy, that's really weird because it's not how we do it. And so let's try and remember that if we look at, because it's already becoming a weird thing. People nowadays ask parents for blessings in marriage, right? And some people are going, why would you do that? That's really weird. That's weird to certain cultures, but it's one that we've adopted and one that we've practiced. This was showing that women have value. And in fact, they had such a value that even if the man was going to do this and, and, and sleep with the woman before marriage, that he was going to have to treat her as such. What if God's law shaped our sexual ethic today? Would the world not look different? I like what Sean McDowell says. We've thrown out God's law. And this is a result. Imagine a world in which everyone follows God's design for sex and marriage. There would be no sexually transmitted disease, no abortions, no brokenness from divorce. Every child would have a father and a mother and experience the love and acceptance each parent uniquely offers. There'd be no rape, no sex abuse, no sex trafficking, no pornography, and no need for a Me Too campaign. Think of the healing and wholeness that people would just listen to Jesus' life-giving words regarding human sexuality. $16.9 billion spent every year in the U.S. on pornography, more than football, basketball, or baseball. 27 million people still enslaved in human trafficking, 2 million of those being children. International Justice Missions gives those statistics. We have a problem, and it's that we have abandoned God's word and his good law and have adopted a world of our own, which is why God's law shows us the way that life was intended to be lived. It shows us how we interact with people that are different from us, ethnically different. Look at, look at 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. You were sojourners in the land of Egypt. It's very practical. You shall not mistreat a, uh, any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Some of God's strongest words. Jesus too comes against harm done to children. God refers to himself in the Psalms as a father to the fatherless. Even one of the ways you can get involved with helping the, the, the orphans in our city is every one of our gospel communities is helping with something called Foster the County, where we are coming alongside resource families to love and serve and bless them as they seek to take care of fatherless children. So if you jump into a gospel community, more, you, you can live out the one another's that God's word calls us to live, but you can also live out what it looks like to care for the people and for the children in our city that are currently fatherless and helpless. And so I, I would entreat you, I, I would encourage you, jump in and help out with that. I'm way past my time I gave myself. <clears throat> so I'm gonna wrap up with saying this. 
29 talks to us about our finances and, and, and it calls us in, in 22 to give the fullness of your harvest from the outflow of, uh, of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give me. You shall do the same with your ox and your sheep and whatnot. We're going to be diving into finances and money next week. But church family, what if we started trusting God in this area and knowing that his way is the best? And God doesn't actually need anything for us. I love what the Protestant Martin Luther says. He says, look, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbors do. What he was saying is that, yes, our neighbors need our good works. God has saved us not according to our works. He set us aside for good works, but it's not God who needs those to love us, but our neighbors do. What if we started with 10% and trusted God in that area? So many people I talk to and I say, tell me about your budget. And they say, well, I, I do this, I have debt, I have this, I have this, I have this. And then whatever I have left over here, I'm like, what if you started with that? I said, God, I'm gonna set this aside for you. And I'm gonna trust the rest gets worked out from there. I wish many Americans and Christians would do that. That way the local church is empowered to even help take care of the orphans in our city. Let me close with saying this. My intent in all of this is to show this. I'm going to read a quote by Donald Barnhouse, who says this. It's not going to be on the screen, so just try and listen closely. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, the city where Barnhouse pastored, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be filled every Sunday where Christ was never preached. In other words, our job and our goal as Christians and with the sermon this morning is my goal is not to convert someone from pro-choice to pro-life to a sexual ethic according to God's word. Our job is to present the gospel to people. Present to them the gospel. The only thing that can take someone from a dead heart a heart of stone and give them a new heart that it can actually walk in obedience to Christ. You might be pro-life. You might not ever cuss. You might obey all the rules. You might have a great sexual ethic, but your heart can still be dead without the spirit living and abiding inside of you. So let me say this. Christ Jesus came on this earth to live according to the law. He was the law provider who told us this. He was the law abider. He followed it, but then he went to the cross and, and died a criminal's death so that he can make everyone through faith in him insiders into his family. We'll end with what Ezekiel eleven nineteen says. God realized the Israelites were liberated from the Egyptians, but they weren't liberated from their hearts. They needed new hearts. We need new hearts. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. God's law shows us the way. Our best obedience our best moral behavior and all of that is never going to save us. Christ Jesus came and he provides the way for us to be reconciled to God for eternity. And then we're given a spirit that now helps us to live according to God's law, to not manipulate him to love us, but to know that God's love will never shift or change for us in Christ. And now we can live obediently out of that. Let's pray. Father, I know this is <clears throat> difficult to preach through. I feel the weight of that. But we thank you for your word and we thank you for the value of human life. We thank you for your good law. We thank you that your law, God shows us the way. And what it ultimately leads us to is it leads us to this true fact. We cannot, Christ did, and we celebrate what he has done. In Jesus' name, amen.